Thanks, Mark. Thanks, everyone. Well, good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, my name is Mark, and uh, I'm the rector here, the senior pastor, and it's just great to worship with you this morning. Now, I know, as you heard that Bible reading read, that this was going through your mind. First time round, weren't you? Get your inner flower girl on, your inner flower boy on. There we go, the birds made famous again in Forest Gump. Uh, incredibly powerful words, that poem. Uh, and not just because it's a beautiful piece of poetry but because it stirs something very deep inside of us. It stirs inside of us, uh, I think, two things. And this text tells us this, and, and we'll think a lot about them. The one thing it stirs inside of us is that the world has a beautiful order about it, doesn't it? Like it just... There's a time for everything. There's seasons. We don't live in a world of randomness and chaos. And, and there's, there's wonder and there's glory. And it's good. In fact, it's more than good. It's exquisitely gorgeous. But it also stirs in us, uh, I think, this, this deep sense of kind of ache, because we know as wonderful and glorious and beautiful as this world is, we know that the seasons are passing, and that's sad. And we also know, don't we, that, that actually finding our place and knowing how we're to live in this world is actually really hard, isn't it? I mean, timing is everything in this world. How do you know? Um, you know, are you in a time uh, to kill or a time to heal? And killing here probably is about capital punishment or war. What season of life are you in, and how do you live in that season of life? Uh, this poem in verses 1 to 8 is all-encompassing. It says, God's plan and order covers every bit of reality. There's a time for everything. Yes, that's great. But it's passing, and it's hard to know what I should do. Uh, I'm a bit of a fan, a big fan of a fellow called Warren Buffett. Some of you might know Warren Buffett, famous from such movies as How to Become a Billionaire, Starting with Nothing by Creating My Company Called Berkshire Hathaway. Doesn't really exist as a movie, but I just thought I'd say that. Uh, so Buffett has this comment, talking about asset bubbles. Okay, so you all know, don't you, that Australia is living in the world's longest-running asset bubble. 
60 years of uh, an asset bubble in real estate caused by uh, government policy, immigration, tax policy, and low interest rates, 60 years of endless inflation of this massive asset bubble. Now, this is what Buffett says. He says, in an asset bubble, we're all trying to be like Cinderella at the ball. Okay, so what's Cinderella's strategy? She dances until just before midnight, and then she can get out and get home, and it's all good. And Buffett says, the problem is, we're all in this asset bubble, dancing like Cinderella at the ball, but the problem is we're dancing in a hall with no clocks. So you don't know. When's it going to strike midnight? When's the crash going to come? So therefore, how do you know how to behave? Are we one minute from midnight on the impending apocalyptic crash of our real estate bubble? I don't know. Does it even exist? Well, you're probably thinking, no, it doesn't. Particularly if you, you know, you own a house. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It's not going to happen. Uh, and maybe I'm completely wrong. But in all of life, how do you know what time you're in and when's it all about to fall apart? Or when's it, you know, if you just hang in there a little bit longer, is it about to take off and go really, really well? How do you know? Should you leave your job now? Or should you hang in there? It's tough. <laughs> Maybe you work for AMP or a bank. <laughs> should I leave now? Well, who will employ me? Uh, or maybe if I hang in there, it's going to open up amazing opportunities to be part of rebuilding our financial services organization, and, uh, and I'll have an amazing opportunity. Who knows? How do you know what season you're in? If you're a parent, are you in the season of, my kids need more discipline? Or are you in the season of, my kids just need to be loved, and they need cuddles and hugs and unconditional affirmation? How do you know? And you see, it gets harder, doesn't it? Because um, what seems to be the right season for you might, I might be in a different season. Is that how it works? I don't make sense of that. And all the seasons are passing, aren't they? We're going to weep, we're going to laugh, we're going to mourn, we're going to dance, and we're going to gather stones, so we're going to build, and we're going to pull apart, we're going to plant, we're going to embrace and refrain from embracing. That's a key verse that is used in uh, manipulative youth groups. You know? It's a time for that. None of that here. It's actually talking about sex, so I guess that's appropriate. Um, but you know, we do all of this, loving and hating, and then we die talked a bit about that last week. We'll talk a bit more about it next week. And so at the end of this beautiful poem, which sounds lovely and is fantastic, the writer says this, Kohelet says this, well, okay, at the end of the day, uh, this is a bit of a theme of the whole book. What do we, what's the benefit in it for us? What's the benefit? And he goes on, and, and this beautiful poem, this orderliness of life, the sense of finding my time and place in, in this world actually is a burden burden. See, if the world was just random, I'd be like, oh, the world's just random. But I, I know that there's order. I know that timing is everything. But I struggle to know what the order is and what the time really is and how I should live in that. This is the problem, right? Uh, 
I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. And then, you know, verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. So the writer's saying, look, and I think this is true of all of us. We think if there is a God, whether you're religious or not, um, actually, it was a bit, I, I think everyone's religious, right? In the same way that actually everyone's a royalist. Even the Republicans couldn't help themselves last night, you know, uh, caught in this because there's something mystical about this thing that taps something deep in our souls. You know, the, the royals, the pageantry, the, the reproduction, the, all of this. So we see ourselves reflected in that. So you, whatever you might say about your particular form of government, you get caught up in this. It's the same with religion. Oh, no, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. But actually, We all know that if there's this deep yearning and longing in us and we live as though there is a God and this yearning that this God is good and this God has a, a plan to make the world beautiful and good, no one really worships an evil God. <laughs> we, we don't. We live as though there's a good God, even if we deny it in our words, right? So, and, and in an orderly creation. Then he says this, you know, he has set eternity in the human heart and scholars, there's a whole lot of debate about what that really means and what that looks like. Um, and you go, that's right. Every one of us has this sense of, of the orderliness of time, the progression of time, that we're going somewhere. We all know we're going somewhere, right? Now, death is not the end. Everyone gets that. But here's our big problem, right? No one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He says, I don't get it. How do I know? And again, if you get your inner nerd on or you listen to the sermons from the last two weeks, you know, one of the, one of the reasons Ecclesiastes is written, perhaps the dominant reason, is to push us to experience the limits of our own autonomous knowing and living. So when I try and live in the world and make sense of it on its own terms, I come up against this enigma continually, and at the heart of this enigma is I, I, can't, I just don't understand what's really going on. Very honest. And then he says, look, yeah, I, I know, I, I get all of that, and I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and do good while they live. I mean, that's awesome, right? I get that. I know that clearly and well. I just need a quote from here. Uh, I know that clearly and I know that, well, that's what's meant to happen. Each of them may eat, drink, find satisfaction in their toil. This is uh, the gift of God. But I can't work out what it is. See, uh, we, have, we have eternity in our hearts. We have a sense of the orderliness of the world. But we also have the sheer unbridled terror of our own freedom. And the existentialist philosophers, uh, particularly the French existentialists after the Second World War, really made it, went to town on this and showed how terrifying and what a great burden human freedom actually is. So we don't like it. It's a, it's a terrible burden. Because I, 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 I can't figure out exactly what's right. Uh, as, as Sartre said, um, to not choose is to choose. So I can't not choose. All of life is choice. But I'm, I'm choosing without knowing. That's a burden. It's a bit like, uh, I remember hearing one 
speaker describe it this way to describe the anxiety of our age. Uh, and here's a little thought experiment. Imagine uh, you've got to get into, you, you've parked on Darling Street, because this analogy wouldn't work because you'd, you'd have very short experience doing this. You parked on Darling Street and you get into your car to go home and uh, the car is completely, all the windows are blacked out. <laughs> and now you've got to drive. What would that be like? It'd be really, how would you go with that? It's terrifying. What a burden. I'm free to drive. I have to drive. I have to choose. But I can't actually see where I'm going. Our experience of that uh, we had an experience similar to this, driving in Canada when we were living there, coming back from a weekend in the snow, uh, from where we were living in Toronto, uh, Mississauga, for those of you from there who are listening online and would want to correct what I've just said, uh, the area of Toronto, Mississauga. So we're, we're up north and we're coming down and there's this highway, the 400, that goes up into the sort of the, the, the hill country, the snows, and we're driving back late on a Saturday night so we can do church the next day and we get caught in this massive, massive snowstorm. And I kid you not, it's absolutely terrifying. Because you can't see, like you're driving along and you, you know, and, there's, and you can see like a meter in front of you. And what makes it even more terrifying is Canadians don't seem to get scared by that. So we're crawling along in the cars, and there's guys coming past us in trucks at like, you know, 100 kilometers an hour. And we're like, wow, that's uh, extraordinary. We waited till the snowplow, the snowplows came, and then we tucked in behind the snowplows and just drove down the road behind the snowplows at you know, 40 k's an hour. But that's what we're like. We're driving in a snowstorm, radically free to choose, but actually we don't know where, what's going on around us. We're driving down Darling Street with the windows blacked out. You've got to choose, you've got to drive. And so the way we deal with the burden is we pretend and we try that it's not there or we try not to think about it, but it is. So we're in this beautiful world. It's glorious. It's wonderful. It is, isn't it? So how do I know how to live? What choices am I going to make? How do I make sense of it? Uh, so Paul Ricoeur, uh, a French philosopher, wrote a uh, massive volume, a two-volume tome, entitled Time and Narrative. Because making sense of time takes, uh, you know, a lot of time <laughs> and a lot of words when you write in French, and uh, apparently. And um, this, is the, this is what he said. The, this, the, the, the thesis of the book is that um, we can only live in time by narrative activity. Mm. That sounds more impressive in French, let me tell you. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> what does it mean? What does it mean? How do we, what's he getting at when he says we can only live in time by narrative activity? Well, if you want to know how to live in time, you've got to know what time it is, which means you've got to know where you are in the story. Because life is a story. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end. And you've got to know where in the story you are. Cinderella had to know it was one minute to midnight in her story and she had to get out of there. We need to know. 
and we and and this is the this is what t a contemplation of time pushes us to, because it says here that God does all of this. God creates time, makes it enigmatic, makes it a burden, puts eternity in our hearts, gives us the ability to experience this wonderful, extraordinary life, gives us the the inescapable responsibility of choosing to act in this world, and it's a burden on us, and it creates anxiety, joy, as well as hardship, and why does he do it all? So that you and I will fear him. You say, what does that mean? Well, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So he says he creates this whole world of time and the burden that it is. Why? So that we will be pushed to trust God, to go through life hand in hand with God, knowing that he alone is the one who sees the beginning from the end, knowing that he alone is the one who sees over the snowstorm or outside our blackened windows and can direct us and guide us and help us live well in the particular season of life that we're in. That's the whole point. Let the uncertainty, let the anxiety, let the burden, let the struggle of choosing in an open, timed world push us to say, I need God. It's not going to work without Him. So, what becomes really important to make sense of this is our place in God's story. And what I wanted to do was just give you a quick little framework to help you figure out what does it look like to fear God for you tomorrow when you go to work? How do we find our place in this story? Okay? So, um, I've got to figure out what. Yeah, there we go. Uh, so, here's how the story works you can think of the story of humanity as a five-act play, okay? Oh, yeah. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, it has five acts. Now, I don't know why it is with plays, but you've always got to write the acts in Roman numerals. I think it's so it can look more impressive. Isn't that weird? <laughs> I said, why is that? Who decided that? Plays, Roman numerals, because we're very sophisticated people. We're not like ordinary people. Okay, there we go. Thought I had to get that out of my system. Act one. What's the start of the story? What's act one in the story, uh, in the Bible story of the world? Creation. Yay. Very good. And that's act one, scene one. What's act one, scene two? Fall. The mess. So this is how any story starts. God makes the world and it's good and it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's fantastic and he puts people in it and it's just exquisite and gorgeous and brilliant. And you go, yes, that's fantastic, God. What a great God. Woohoo! But we all know every story has to have uh, what is called an inciting incident. Every movie has this, every script has it. You have an inciting incident, that moment where something goes wrong. And that sets up the rest of the story. And actually, good movies have the inciting incident. They've got to, it's got to come pretty quickly, otherwise you get bored and lose interest. There's no story like, oh, it was just a great world, and then it got better, and then it was fantastic, and everything was good, and it was wonderful, and it was good. That's not a story. Okay, so it starts, it's good. What's the inciting incident? The four, oh my goodness, look what they did. They screwed it all up. Oh man, everything's now polluted and messed up. Oh! <gasps> 
they're kicked out of the garden. There's pain, there's agony, there's heartache, there's oppression, there's injustice, and there's death. That's Act 1. Scene 2. What's Act 2? Moses, Abraham, Noah. Okay, that's all true enough. Israel, starting with Abraham and uh, the people of God in the Old Testament. So here's the deal. Okay, we've fallen in a heap in Act 1, Scene 2. Act 2, Scene 1. God calls Abraham, and it's all going to be good. He's going to start again. It's going to be fantastic. He's like, oh, Abraham. Isaac, it's all going to be good. Oh, Isaac. Jacob, it's going to be fantastic. Oh, Jacob. And so it goes on right the way through the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures. The people of Israel are called, and they have this amazing destiny. And they just keep stuffing it up. It's the same problem as Act 1, Scene 2, over and over and over again. It just, yeah, it's going to be great. No, it's not. Yeah, it's going to be great. No, it's not. And that's really, that's the Old Testament in uh, 45 seconds, Act 2. What then is Act 3? This is the opportunity for the safest answer you will ever give in church. Yeah, there we go. That's it. That's safe. You just, just stick with that. If this is your first time in church um, and you've never been in anywhere near a Christian community, anytime anyone asks you anything, the safest answer is Jesus. This will confuse people over morning tea when they say to you, what is your name? And you say, Jesus. Um, unless it is and you're from visiting us from Latin America, in which case, welcome. Safe answer. In this instance... <laughs> It's actually true. Act three in the story of the world is God coming onto the world to solve the problem. Every narrative, every story has this, every movie has it. The hero who's finally going to resolve the inciting incident, the problem, the challenge there, steps onto the stage and you go, yeah, Bruce Willis has arrived. Or whatever. Pick your own hero. I don't know. In this instance, it's Jesus. He's arrived, and he is going to solve all the problems of the world. So act three, scene one, you know, birth narratives, act scene, act three, scene two, early life, act scene three, blah, three, it's his public ministry. At the end of act three, scene four, what happens? He dies. The hero dies, and you're like, oh, no, it's happening all over again. What's going to happen? But how does right at the end of the scene, uh, scene four of Act three, what happens? The hero rises again. So the life, the death, the resurrection of the hero, Jesus, now we're talking. This is amazing. Something extraordinary has happened in this story, right? But it's not the end, is it? Because we're still here. Haven't got to us yet, and... What's our part in the story? Because that's the whole point of this sermon, and that's why you're here this morning, I assume, is to find out what your part is in this great story, which is another way of saying what you're really here to do is find out how you should live in this world. So what is Act 4? It's the church. It's the church. It's us. It starts, and it's the church 
and the church is birthed by what? Holy Spirit. So we live in the age of the Spirit, the age of the church. This is our act. And in fact, today, I don't know if you know this, for those of you who follow the liturgical calendar, today's Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday is the day in the church's year where we remember the birth of the church, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit to start this new act in God's story. Now, it's where we are. It's you and me. Noah. Okay. What then is Act 5? The return of Jesus? It's new creation. So what happens is when our season of the church is over, our destination is the new creation. It's where we're heading, where this world is made new, where every tear is wiped away from the eye of every one of God's people, and everything finally and fully is made beautiful, where everything lasts, as it says in Ecclesiastes, that eternity is our home, is our destiny, is our destination, and this eternity is a new creation. It's not shooting off to go and sit on a cloud somewhere. It's the fulfillment of God's plan in this world. So we're going to be embodied. We're going to have bodies. We're going to dance and we're going to work and we're going to love and we're going to serve and we're going to rule the world or worlds or galaxies. And everything's going to be perfect and wonderful. Everything that's, everything that's good, think about it. Um, think about the things that bring you the greatest joy in this world that are most wonderful and exquisite. And imagine that going on forever. And growing in intensity, increasingly more and more intense and exquisite, uninterrupted by the passing of time or disappointment or loss or grief or selfishness, and you've only just started to get a glimpse of how good the new creation will be. It's wonderful. You love work. Imagine working in a way that is actually productive and helpful. And I mean, that's so much joy, right? We're made to work. So that's where we're going. Now, I hear you saying, Mark, how does this help me with what I should do tomorrow to know what season I'm in? Well, here's the thing, right? Here, we have three resources fundamentally to help us figure out the time we're in. We have uh, God's people. We have the church, the community of people to help us discern, we have the Bible and we have the Holy Spirit. How does the Bible work? Because I'm, I'm going to make a little interesting suggestion here. You may disagree with me on this. That's okay. You're allowed to be wrong. Um, I jest. Uh, some people think religious texts work like a, a very detailed script in a play. So how does a play work? A script tells you, gives you all your lines and detailed stage direction, right? 
So telling you exactly what you should do and when you should say. The Quran functions a little bit like this in Islam. The goal of the Quran, of being a Muslim, is to do absolutely exactly in every detail what uh, the Prophet would have done were he in your place so that you can be related to God. Rightly, you can live a great life. The Bible doesn't work like that, does it? How does the Bible work? Well, actually, in Act 4, this is the stage, this is the act of improvisation. We're called to improvise. We, we know what's come in the past, and we know our improvisation has to be consistent with that. And there are certain stage directions, like in your improvising, in your Christian life, don't kill people. That's not good. Um, that's not consistent with the part. Don't commit adultery. That's not good. Don't gossip. Don't be proud. And then some positive things. Look after the poor. Love God. Love other people. So here are the boundaries. But within those, there is enormous freedom to choose. So go for it. Figure it out. But figure it out knowing, this, knowing where you are in the story and, the, and knowing as a community we figure it out. So we improvise together. So when you're trying to figure out what you should do tomorrow, should you leave your job, should you take a new job, these are decisions that we're typically to make in community. Bounce the ideas of older, wiser people. Submit your own decision-making to the scrutiny of others who are disinterested but who still love you. Okay, But then we also have this extraordinary resource called the Holy Spirit. So what's the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Well, imagine this. You're an actor in a play. You've got the script, but now you've got to improvise. But now you have the voice of the director and the script writer in your ear, giving you suggestions on how you should improvise as you go in the moment. That's what the Holy Spirit does. So you're improvising, you're figuring it out, and you've got this, the, the script writer, the director, the producer of the play in your ear going, Mark, do this, do that, do the other thing. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's why one of the most important disciplines of the Christian life is learning how to keep in step with the Spirit, as the Bible says in Galatians. You've got to learn. How do you do that? You've got to learn to hear His still, small voice, to discern all the thoughts in your head, which of those thoughts are actually the Spirit speaking to you and which are just your thoughts, and then to act in obedience on those, in community, in a way that is consistent with the, the whole sweep of the drama the Holy Spirit's never going to say to you, well, I think you should kill someone right now. Because that, that, the Spirit, that's not what the director and the author of this play would ever tell you to do. So, how do you know how to live in the world today well? Well, understand your place in the story. And then go through life hand in hand with the author of the story, filled with the spirit of the author of the story, listening to him, saturated in the Bible, which gives you the contours and the structure of the whole thing, and 
lock in lockstep with the Holy Spirit and with your brothers and sisters in Christ while you're steadfastly set on eternity and the new creation. That's it. That's not so hard, is it? It's the way to live and to flourish. Does that make sense? Do you know that? Do, do, you know, are you listening to the Holy Spirit? And you're finding your place in the story? That's how it starts to make sense. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we thank you that you have created time and order in the world and you've put eternity in our hearts, our sense of this time and orderliness and creation so that we can find it to be confusing and challenging and difficult so that we can learn what it is to trust you and go through life with you. And I ask, Lord God, for each of us in this room, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, that this morning we will we'll look up to you, we'll look around to each other, and we'll cry out to your Holy Spirit to fill us and to guide us so that we can live for you in this world. Guide us in our lives, Lord. Provide for us. Help us to trust you. And Lord, fill us with joy as we do it, that this is an extraordinarily beautiful, wonderful, glorious world and send us out into it hand in hand with you, full of your spirit, full of joy. And we ask all this in your name, Lord. Amen.